Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to open the word and to look at it. We, we thank you for this. We ask you to lead us and guide us as we go through this. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so last week we talked about David being anointed king and Saul taking him into the court to be an instrument player and sing songs to calm him down. And this week will be in 1 Samuel chapter 17, which is probably one of the most famous stories that almost everybody who knows anything about the Bible knows about. David and Goliath. Uh, if you don't know any other story in the Bible, you probably know David and Goliath. Uh, so, chapter 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered together their armies into battle and were gathered together at, at Sukkoth, which belongs to Judah, and pitched between Sukkoth and Azekah and Ephesadamin. And Saul and his men of Israel were gathered together and pitched by the valley of Elah and set the battle in array against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and, the Israel, and Israel stood on a mountain on the other side and there was a valley between them. And there went out a champion out of the camp of the Philistines named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits in a span. And he had a helmet of brass on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of the coat was five thousand shekels of brass and he had greaves of brass on his legs and a target of brass on, between his shoulders and the staff of his spear was like the weaver's beam and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and one bearing a shield went before him and he stood and cried out unto, unto the army of Israel and said unto them why are you come out to set your battle in array am I not a Philistine and are you not the servants of Saul choose you a man for you and let him come down to me if he be able to fight with me and kill me, then will we be your servants. And I, But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistines said, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we can fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. All right. So we have this situation where the Philistines and Saul are pitching for battle. They're in, a, in the valley of Elam, and on the maps, that Elam is not really on there, but if you see the words Beth Shemesh, right between Gath and Bethlehem, the valley of Elam is right about there. All right, right about where the words are is where, where that valley is. It's, it's about 20 miles from Mishpah, which has been the headquarters for Israel, and it's about 13, 14 miles from Gath, so it's really very central. It's almost like the central center of the two uh, capitals. The Philistines are on the coast of the Mediterranean. They, Gaza, Ascalon, Ashtaroth, Ekron, Gath, that's the Philistines. So they're going east and meeting, they're going east and, and Saul was coming west and they meet right there about at the Valley of Elam, all right? And uh, it said they pitched their battle and they were fighting. They were actually having a fight each day. It said the Philistines were on one mountain, Israel was on another mountain. And this was not an uncommon tactic. You would put a valley between you and you camped on the mountains, basically so you couldn't be hit from behind and you could watch your flanks pretty easy and it made a defendable position. It's always in the military st a strategy. The, high ground is easier to defend than, than the low ground, and then they would go and they'd have their battle in, in the valley between. So you got the two armies looking at each other and having battles each day. And we kind of leave out this idea that there was battles. If you know the story, they never talk about the battles that were going on each day. But each day, Goliath came out and he challenged Israel to single combat. He goes, send me out somebody to fight me. This was not uncommon in that, in that day. Matter of fact, it went up pretty much through the Middle Ages. Rather than sacrifice a whole lot of men in a pitched battle, you'd pick one or more individuals and say, okay, you guys represent the nation, and the winner wins the, wins the war. And everybody else will surrender and be their servants, and that's what... Goliath is saying. Now, we, before we get to this, it, goes, it gives us a picture of Goliath. Goliath is a really short guy. He's only nine foot six inches. 
Now, people will go, well, nobody's ever been that tall. Well, you know, the largest man on, on record in Guinness, Guinness Book of record, World Records is 8 foot 11 inches. So that's only 7 inches shy of what Goliath is reported to be. And they were in pretty good shape back then, and they, they uh, probably did still have giants from, from before. And uh, one of the things about the height of people, if you watch and look at history, uh, the height of people and the size of people is directly related to this food supply. When food is abundant, people get larger because we can hand, they, they are able to be nourished. When food supplies are hard to get, get and are lessened, people tend to be shorter. Even in the 1700s, if you were 5'8 or 5'9, you were a tall person. If you go back east and see some of those beds those guys slept on, it's amazing. I, you know, I definitely couldn't fit on those beds, and most people in our day and age couldn't fit on those beds. Over the years, food supply has gotten plentiful all around the world, and we're generally getting a taller and taller people. And this, so at this period of time, there was a lot of tall people. And you know, so a lot of people were aware of this too big. Well, even in the NBA, they've got a lot of guys that are 7'7 seven, seven and above, or 7'7 seven, seven and, and that 7-foot range. So again, those are guys that would be considered giants in our days. And uh, so it's not, a, not an unusual height. It is tall. Uh, it is tall. And it says that uh, he had a helmet of brass. And he had a mail coat that weighed 5,000 shekels of brass. That's approximately 157 pounds. So his breastplate weighed most, more than a lot of people do. Uh, and he wore that into battle. This guy was a pretty strong, pretty strong man. And it says that he had greaves of brass on his legs, or that's armor that covered his legs, and a target of brass between his shoulders, and that literally would be a thing to cover his throat. All right, it, it, that's what it means when it says the target of brass. It's, it's something that would cover his throat, which is a weak area, so he was trying to cover anything that was weak for him, he covered, covered up well. And he had a staff like a weaver's beam, and that's that big, you know, Car, uh, thing goes up and down, so it's huge. I mean, it's, it's talking about, uh, and it says he had an, a spearhead of 600 shekels of iron, which is approximately 18 pounds. This, his uh, armor is a pretty amazing set of armor. And David is going to take all of this stuff and it's going to go into basically museums, treasuries. Uh, a lot of it's going to sit in the, in the temple when it's made of the tabernacle, it goes on display. We, we've destroyed this man. So these things are well weighed. These are not just, well, we think they were about this much. They had them in their possession. They would have been uh, uh, cataloged and everything. And so they were well known, these, these, these amounts. And, uh, and then he had a shield bearer that went before him. <laughs> these. <laughs> Now, yeah, I can almost picture this because the shield bearer is usually a very young man. So you've got this little, little guy barely holding the shield of, that, would, that would have been accompanying because they don't mention a shield, but you've got to imagine if he's got a 157-pound breastplate and all these other things, his shield had to have had some, some uh, weight to it. And, uh, and he stood up there and he cried, why do you come out in battle array? I, am I not a Philistine? You know, pick one of those servants of Saul and we'll, we'll come out and we'll fight one-on-one. -on -one. And again, like I said, this is not unusual in ancient warfare. Uh, in Second uh, Samuel chapter 2, there's a story in there starting at verse 12. And Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon and Joab, the son of Zuraiel, and the servants of David went out and met together by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, and one, the one on the one side of the pool and one on the other side of the pool. And Abner said to Joab, Let the young man now arise and play before us. And Joab said, Let them arise. And they arose and went over by number 12 Benjamin from Benjamin that pertained to Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and 12 the servants of David. And they caught each other. By the, by the head and thrust their sword in the, into his fellow's side and they fell down together. 
Therefore, that place is called Higaath Huzurim, which is in Gibeon. And there was a sore battle that day, and Abner was beaten, and the men of Israel before the servants of David. This is the only other example that I remember in the Bible where we have this multiple combat, and they were 12 on 12. And they all killed each other, which is very unusual. Uh, but all through the history of battle, it's not uncommon for one to call out the other and say, you know, rather than slaying thousands of people, let's just put one, two, a dozen, three dozen people together, you know, 100 on 100, and whoever wins the, that small battle will be the, the winner of the war. And so this is not an uncommon thing that Goliath is doing. You know, saying, hey, you know, and he's pretty, he's pretty confident. You know, he's a big guy. He's pretty sure he can beat anybody they send against him. Uh, he's pretty sure that his sword alone will probably annihilate them, you know, and they, you know, because even, even if they try to block it, his height and his size, he's pretty sure his sword's going to crush them. Um, so he's, he's coming in this pretty confident. And he goes, you know, verse 9, And if he be able to fight with me and kill me, we will be your servants. And if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants. And this is the normal statement. What is that these guys fight one-on-one? -on -one. It's not usually the champion that does this. It's usually the king's gathering, to, you know, the generals or the king's gathering together and say, you know, hey, rather than, you know, wiping out a large number of our people, let's just have a champion's fight. And uh, then Goliath does something that is a little more of this. He says, I defy the armies of Israel this day. Give me a man that we shall, that we may fight together. He goes, he's taunting them. Give me somebody. It's, you know, he's basically saying, you guys are just a bunch of chickens. <laughs> you know, or whatever their, whatever their equivalent in that day was. But he's saying, you're just a bunch of yellow-bellied chickens. You know, well, one of you come out here and fight me. And the interesting thing is, when we read in verse 11, then Saul and all of Israel heard these words of the Philistine. They were dismayed and greatly afraid. And you can almost, from worldly wisdom, it makes sense. Saul, Saul is one of the largest in Israel, and he's a shrimp compared to Goliath. And by the description, he's about six foot, six foot six. So we've got Goliath standing three feet taller, give or take, you know, above Saul. And even if Saul was seven foot, you know, he still got him standing two and a half feet taller than, than Saul. And Saul is not all that brave, apparently. <laughs> he doesn't want to face Goliath. Which kind of makes you wonder what kind of army Israel had at this time. They were not willing to take this challenge. And by sight, it was a challenge that nobody should take. You, know, you got this big guy, who's going who's gonna to beat him? He could probably beat you with his eyes closed. He'd just run over. If, you, if he fell on you, you'd be dead type, <laughs> type guy. By now, it looks like they've been, they've been fighting constantly through Saul's reign. But again, this is a big deal. Now, this is a tall man, a big man. He's got to be muscular to be carrying 157 pounds worth of armor and a, and a spear that's 20 pounds, almost 20 pounds. That alone is going to be pretty heavy, and it doesn't even mention his sword. So how many years is it? We're getting toward the end of Saul's 40 years of reign, somewhere around 25, 30 years in. So he's been fighting for about 15, 20 years. Because he's going to chase David for 15 or 20 years of his reign. So right now we're sitting maybe half a little, just beyond half of Saul's, Saul's reign. So 20-ish. So they're real they're weary at this point. You know, but there should be some champion willing to say, I'm going to defend the honor of Israel. But nobody is willing to defend the honor of Israel. And it says that this goes on, oh, we haven't got there, but it's going to go on for 40 days of, of Goliath challenging them every day. And there's battles in between. Verse 12. Now David was the son of Ephrath of, of the Ephrath of Benjamin, of Benjamin Judah, whose name was Jesse, and he had eight sons. And the man went among men for an old man in the days of Saul. And the three oldest sons of Jesse went and followed Saul into to the battle. And the names of his sons that went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, and next to him was Abinadab, and the third was Shammoth. And David was, a young, was the youngest, and the three eldest followed Saul. 
But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. And the Philistines drew near morning and evening and presented themselves 40 days. And Jesse said to David, his son, take now for your brethren an ephah of parched corn and these 10 loaves and run to the camp to your brothers and carry these 10 cheeses to the ca captain of their thousands and look how your brother fare and take their pledge. Now Saul and they that of all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines. And David rose up early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took them and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the trench as the host was going forth to battle and shouted for, bat for the battle. For Israel and the Philistines had put the battle into array, army against army. And David left his carriage in the hand of the keeper of the carriage and ran, into the, ran to the army and came and saluted his brethren. And as he talked with them, behold, there came the champion, the Philistine of Gath, Goliath by name, out of the armies of the Philistines and spoke according to the same words, and David heard them. And all the children of David, when they saw the man, fled from him and were sore afraid. And the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man that has come up? Surely to defy the children. Israel and is he come up and it and it shall be that the man who kills the king kills him the king will enrich him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel and David spoke to the men that stood by him saying what shall be done to the man that kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel and who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he does defy the armies of the living God and the people answered him after this man are saying, so shall it be done to this man that kills him. Jesse decides that his sons are away at war and he wants to find out what's going on. Uh, you gotta remember this was a time when they could not turn his TV on and see live broadcasts from the, from the field. See, see, all he knows is that his children have gone to war. He hasn't gotten any letters from them in the, in the weeks that have been going by. So he decides, uh, David, I'm going to send you up there. I want to. I want to know what's going on with your brothers. I want to know if they're alive or dead, or if we're winning or we're losing. I want you to go up there, basically. And uh, you know, it says that Jesse had eight children. Three of them have gone to battle, and David is the youngest. And remember, when Samuel last chapter came to anoint them, David was so so memorable that he forgot to call him to the to the meal that Samuel said, "Bring all your sons to." David is kind of traditional youngest son. They kind of get forgotten in the, in the array a lot of times. They're oftentimes loved special by their parents and, and treated with great care. And David apparently in one sense is treated with great care. He's taking care of the sheep. It says David was youngest. And then verse 15 is a real key one. But David went and returned from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. What was David's job? He played the harp for the king and soothed his soothed him and this is an important one we do not know how long has gone from the time he left Saul before he comes back to this battlefront uh, there's no time mark here at all and I bring that up for a good reason as we look at later on and to one of the contradictions that are considered in this scripture uh, and uh, says the Philistines drew morning and evening for 40 days. Yeah, there's, this is a long pitched battle in one place. These people, I don't know, every time they go out to war, Goliath shows up and they, and they retreat. I don't know what's going on in here, but this is a 40 day battle that's going on. Uh, where they don't listen to, to Goliath and then they go out and fight for a while. And, uh, and then it says, Jesse said unto David, now take for your brethren an ephah, that's about nine gallons of parched corn, and these ten loaves, and run to the camp of your brother, and carry these ten cheeses unto their captain, and look how they fare, and take their pledge. Okay, so he's sending his brother's food, or Jesse's sending his son's food, and, and so David gets to carry this. A good-sized bunch of corn, you know, should keep his brothers fed for a little while, and some, some bread, so they can make some sand, you know, some kind of sandwiches or bread or whatever they're going to do with their bread. And he goes out and he brings this, all this food to them. And he brings 10 small cheeses to give to the captain. 
Now, I don't know what the reason of this is. Maybe if he's going to be out on the, you know, amongst the line, he has to he has to give something to the captain or something as well. I don't, I don't know. If there's some history on this or or protocol on this, and it might. And I think there is probably a protocol that you have to bribe the captain to be able to go out and see the men. I don't know. Uh, the, basically, they described a small, small soft cheeses. Uh, I thought maybe they might, you know, when I was doing digging, it said small cheese. I was thinking great big wheels that they could separate amongst a thousand men or something, but uh, it's not indicated what I was what I was studying in. And uh, so he brings all this stuff to to him, and oh, it says, and take their pledge. Now, pledge is a word that was used a long time ago. Basically, it's a token that shows that somebody's okay. All right. Uh, or, as in the days of the chivalry, a lot of times the, the knight would take, the, take something belonging to the maiden that they were defending, and it was, I'm doing this in that person's honor. So it's the same type of thing. The, you know, the welfare of that person was represented by that pledge. And so uh, what Jesse's telling him, I want you to bring back something from your brothers to prove to me they're still alive, is what he's saying. I don't care what it is, a handwritten note, uh, uh, their shoe, you know, whatever it might be, bring something back to tell me that they're still alive. And so David goes there with that purpose. And he gets there, verse 19, just as they were beginning the fight that day. And David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with the keeper and took, took and went as Jesse had commanded him. And he came to the entrenchment or the battle lines as the host was going forth to fight and shouted for the battle. Now, I don't know if this is David who was shouting for the battle or the men that were shouting for the battle, because that was a big part of it. When you went into battle in those days, there's a big war cry. I guess you tried to scare the people before you, as you attacked them. There was no, there was not usually sneak attacks back then. It was like, you know, yelling into the battle. And if you watched old movies, you see that all the time. The guys running into battle, screaming their heads off, uh, letting people know, here we come. <laughs> Yeah. And uh, it says here that David left the battle cart, the carriage with the keeper, and he ran to it and see his brothers. You know, we get this opinion that David enjoyed the fighting. And if we get to know his history, he did enjoy fighting. And remember, even in last chapter, when, when he's introduced to Saul, he's already called a valiant man of battle. So he has already been in some battles even before that. He's the youngest brother. The, the three older brothers have gone to battle, so I think Jesse has kept him home. Uh, plus, he knows that he's been Saul's comforter, I guess you might say, with the music. And David's done his time in, in battle, and, he's, and his brothers are not going to be happy with David being there on the battle, battlefront. Yeah, and I think he's made a name for himself. If you look at David's history, he's been anointed to be king. He's called a valiant man, which means he's won some battles already. Then he's picked to be Saul's harp player. So he's getting familiar with the court. David is becoming famous. Even before this event, David has a little bit of notoriety. And probably his brothers are a little jealous. We don't know if they understood what the anointing was about or not, but he's been moved him to take care of Saul and, and, and comfort him. He's been in some battles to be a, called a violent man. And here he is at the battlefront that he wasn't supposed to be at as far as they're concerned. So we see this whole problem developing. And uh, he says, as he was there, Goliath comes out. And Goliath gives the whole normal speech. Is there any man amongst you brave enough to come out against me? Let one man... One of your people's fight, and you know, the one that, if I win, you'll be our servants. If you win, we'll be your servants. And then he defied God, or at least God's uh, army. And David, instead of getting afraid and dismayed by that, gets upset. Why does he get upset? Because God's name had been called into question. That upset David. Yeah, David could handle Goliath boasting and bragging all he wanted, but when he defied God, he was ready to say, who is this? And that's exactly what he said. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that can speak these things? 
Now, he, gets, he gets a little bit upset about this. His brothers aren't so happy about this, as we find out. Uh, and he goes, David, and they find out, David goes, what's going to happen to the person who kills this, this uncircumcised Philistine? And they list three rewards to them in verse 25. The king will enrich him with great riches. Okay? Whoever kills this guy is going to get wealthy. And the king will give him his daughter. You're going to be made, brought into the royal house. And will make his father's house free in Israel. In other words, his, his family does not have to pay taxes. These are some pretty big rewards. Saul has really put out some big rewards here saying, hey, if any of you guys are brave enough to stand and kill this guy, I'm going to give you a great reward. You're going to be rich. You're going to get to be my son-in-law. And just for good measure, your family won't have to pay taxes, which means all that money you got, you're not going to have to pay taxes on. These are some pretty big rewards out there, and yet nobody in the entire army of Israel is willing to step forward to fight Goliath. You know, apparently the rewards just aren't big enough for most of these people. And David spoke to them and said, hey, what's going on? And, you know, uh, what shall be done to the man that takes away the reproach from Israel? And who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of Israel? So David's not even looking at him saying, I can take him because of who I am. But who is this who's defying God? And this is one of the things I say so often. For us as Christians, we need to not bow down before the world because God's ways are right. And when we bow down to the world, we're basically saying God is not strong enough to keep us. And we want to be careful. David is standing in a whole army where people are saying God's not strong enough to keep us. And David, who they say, keep saying he's, he's a youth, but I believe he's middle, you know, middle 20s, maybe 30, because he's already been taking care of everything. Um, you know, before this, you know, he's already been a mighty man. He's, he's still the, the youngest. And the thing about being the youngest, which I've mentioned so many times, when you grow up and you don't switch communities or churches, you're always looked at as the kid. Now, we shared this with you. I've, I've seen people in their 20s and 30s in a church that everybody always remembers them when they were 10 years old playing in the baptistry or, or 13 getting into the closet that they weren't supposed to be in or you know, whatever it is that they, they remember. Well, you're that kid. <laughs> you're that kid. I remember you. And you never get past this. And I think that's where David's at at this point. He's been the singer player for Saul from his teens. And he doesn't ever seem to grow up in people's eyes. And this is something we have to be very careful of when we look at teenagers and young adults is they're not the kids anymore. Hopefully they're not the kids anymore. Hopefully they've grown up and they've matured. And we've got to get past that, I remember. Same thing with parents. We, you know, we, we tend to think of our kids as kids forever. You know, you know, your kid's 40 years old and he's still a kid. Uh, you're, you know, you're, you're Loretta's age and your kids are 60 years old. They're still kids. Uh, you know, but that's just the way it is. It's human nature to look at, that, look at things that way. And David's saying, oh, who's done this? And, and the people reiterated. And then, then Eliab, his oldest brother, gets in his face a little bit. He's upset with David. He understands David's, David's heart will be to go out and fight this guy. Uh, but in his process, he, he tells David, why did you come down hither, and with who did you leave those few sheep of ours in the wilderness? I know your pride and your haughtiness of your heart, and you are come down that you might see the battle. Okay, he gets in David's face, you know, saying, you know, and it's kind of interesting, he goes, why did you come down here? You know, I know you chose to come down here. You know, Dad sent him, but you know, you you wanted to come. You probably volunteered. You probably tricked Dad into coming, type deal. Uh, and who did you, by the way, who did you leave our few sheep with? Now we don't know how many sheep uh, Jesse has. Uh, I would say that they were probably a few more than a few, because remember, Jesse is descendant of. Uh, <coughs> excuse me of uh, Naomi and Boaz, and Boaz was one of the richer men in Bethlehem at the time. So I had this feeling that they had a few more sheep than just a few. 
They, and so Eliab is really getting sarcastic with him anyway. And then he says, you know, I know, you know, how prideful and naughty your heart is. You just wanted to get down here and see the battle. You just wanted to see people kill each other, which I kind of believe there's a grain of truth in that because when you look at David's life, David was a fighter. He was a warrior. He was, everything about him was about war. And we'll see that as we go on. Now, he was a musician. He loved God. But when he wanted to build God's temple for him, God says, no, you are, your hands are too full of blood. I'm not going to let you build a temple for me. And we see David seeming to like battle. You know, when we go through this, it, matter of fact, as he gets older, his generals finally had to tell him, no, you have to stay home. You're too old to be out in the battlefront. We can't afford to have you lose your life because of your, your age. See what happens when he stays home? Well, yeah, the, the, the time he did stay home, he got in a little bit of trouble uh, with Bathsheba. But later on in the book, it's going to say, no, you need to stay home. Because apparently he had come close to dying, you know, probably came close to dying when this is something that's the older we get sometimes, our mind tells us we can do things and our body keeps telling us, you know, uh, what, who, who do you think you are? Yeah, I tried that playing softball one time, and I did what I, my mind said, you can do this, you've been able to do it all your life. And I started to reach up real high, and the body's going, who do you think you are? You can't do this anymore. So I think that was what happened to David later on, and the general saying, ah, yeah, you're too important to us to die because you can't do what you used to be able to do. And uh, David answers in verse 29, what have I done now? Is, what is, is there not a cause? He goes, I haven't even done anything. All I did was do dad's, you know, listen to dad. Yeah, and that's, you know, typical older brother, younger brother conversation. You know, hey, you know, what are you doing out here? You were always, you're always the favorite. You were always protected. What are you doing out here? And younger, I never get to do anything. <laughs> that's kind of what you're seeing here. You know, as a matter of fact, it wasn't even me who said to come out here. Dad told me to come out here. And uh, then he turned to another person who spoke after the same manner and asked them the same question as a former. And when the words were heard which David spoke, they were rehearsed before Saul, and he sent for him. All right. David is now asked, according to the scripture, three times, what's going to happen to the person who kills this uncircumcised Philistine? He's the bravest talking person in Israel, apparently, at this time. And Saul hears about it. Saul hears, uh, yeah, there's a, there's a young man out there who's, who's talking about being willing to kill, you know, face Goliath and kill him. That's got to intrigue Saul. It's got to intrigue Saul, so he calls for him. Verse 32, and David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight against this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you are not able to go out against this Philistine to fight for him, for you are but a youth, and he a man of war from his youth. And David said to Saul, your servant kept his father's sheep, and there came a lion and a bear and took the lamb out of the flock. And I went out after him and smote him and delivered it out of his mouth. And when he arose against me, I caught him by his beard and smote him and slew him. Your servant slew both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, seeing that he has defied the armies of the living God. David said, Moreover, the Lord has delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear. He will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine. And Saul said unto them, Go, the Lord be with you. Now David's getting a little boastful here. He's called before Saul. He said, You know, hey, don't worry about this. This, this, this uncircumcised Philistine is a dead man. You look at the faith that David has. He is not looking at this eyesight. If Saul was six foot something, David is considered a ruddy man, decent size. You know, he's about five and a half, six foot maybe. He's a normal sized man. And he's ready to go up against Goliath. But he, but he went out and he goes, this is what God has done for me. I've killed a lion. I've killed a bear. Uh, and he gives the right credit. God allowed them to die. So he says, I'm counting on God. I counted on God then. I will count on God now. This guy is defying God. God's not going to let me down. And this is the idea, again, we brought up. How many times do we as Christians back down from challenges because we just don't think God is enough? Now, more often than not. I think we back down from myself because I don't think I can do it. I forget that I'm supposed to be. That's what I mean. Yeah. 
we, we don't, we're not counting on God to do it, so we, we do, I can't get it done, so I'm not going to do it, and we forget that it's God, right, without Christ, I can do nothing, David's understanding that, but it's very important for us to be able to get out and say, God, you want something done, and go do it. And we oftentimes miss the blessings because we do not trust in God. And it's human nature to walk by sight. And that's why it says, the just shall live by faith. The more I live by faith, the more I look at these challenges and saying, well, God, let's, let's, let's take care of this. And again, this is one of the reasons I want us to read biographies so that we see the people who have let God take care of it. Because you wouldn't be in the biography, if your biography wouldn't be written about you if you hadn't let God fight your battles. And this is where we are with David. David is saying, hey, I can, you know, God, God and me, we can do anything. Actually, God can do anything and he'll just use me. Yeah. And this is what David is saying on it. And it says, you know, and in verse 37, the Lord has delivered me out of the paw of the lion and out of the paw of the bear. He will deliver me out of the hand of the Philistine. Whatever he said and how he said it impressed Saul. Because you got to picture this. Saul has got many people bigger than David. Many people with more fighting experience than David. But David's the first one who said he's willing to go to battle. And Saul is entrusting a battle of the two champions. The winner wins the war, and the loser loses the war. And he's entrusting it to some young 20-something kid who's not a warrior right now, is not, not, doesn't have any armor, does not have a sword, and says, I can beat this guy. You know, obviously his confidence inspires Saul. Saul's willing to, hey, yeah, whatever it is, Saul's heart is touched. That this confidence that David has, the spirit that David's speaking through, God speaking through David, which I know is a part of it, and all of a sudden Saul's recognizing that there's a power beyond just bravado here. Yeah, he carried the power of God on himself many times. It's probably that he recognize, he recognizes something. Okay, because you're not just going to hand over the entire war to some youngster just because he's brash enough to say, I'll go fight him. Okay, now 30 days that Goliath has been you know, bragging and defying them, so maybe it is that, well, I finally got somebody who's willing to go out to battle. Go ahead, we'll, we'll, save, we'll save hundreds more lives, you know, thousands of lives this way. I don't know. I've always wondered why Saul said yes. And it could simply be that he's been losing people every day in these pitched battles. And he says, well, you know, one life now, you know, will the battle be over? We're, we're, we haven't been able to win for 40 days. You know, maybe, maybe this brash young man might win. Uh, but here's somebody to, willing to go out. Verse 38, and Saul armed David with his armor and put his helmet of brass upon his head and he armed him with his coat of mail and David girded his sword upon his armor and essayed to, essayed to go and he, for he had not proved it. And David said unto Saul, I cannot go with these. I have not proved them. And David put them off and he took his staff in his hand and chose out five smooth stones out of the brook and put them in a, shepherd, in a shepherd's bag, which he had even in a script and his sling was in his hand, and he drew near to the Philistine. And the Philistine came and drew near unto David, and the man that bare his shield was, went before him. And when the Philistine looked about and saw David, he disdained him, for, what, for he was but a youth and a ruddy and fair countenance. And the Philistine said unto David, Am I a dog that you come to me with staves? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said unto David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh unto the fowls of the air and unto the beast of the field. Then said David to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a shield, but I come to you in the name of the Lord God of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. And this day will the Lord deliver you into my hand, and I will smite you and take your head from you, and I will give your carcass to the uh, to, to uh, the host of the Philistines this day and to the fowls of the beast and to the beast of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and all this assembly shall know that the Lord saves not by sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hands alright 
So David goes out. Saul tries to clothe him in his armor. Now, you've got to picture this very joking situation. Saul, six foot something, puts his armor on David, five something, less than six foot tall, and says, here, you can go to battle in my armor. This, to me, is such a comical picture. If I had been in Saul's place, I would have looked for somebody David's size to arm him with. Okay, Let, you know, I'd have turned to, to Abner and said, hey, go find, go find somebody David's size, get some armor for this man. You know, but he says, let me put the kingly armor on, on David. Now, I almost think that he's trying to get David not to go to battle. Okay, because it doesn't make any sense. You know, oh, this guy's pretty brash. Let's, let's put my armor on him and see, see what he's going to say. Because I don't think, even at this point, that, that Saul's really wanting David to go out and represent the people. He gave him permission, but I think he's doing things, my personal opinion is, I think he's doing things to try to get David not to go to battle. He didn't want David to fight. I don't know if it's so much embarrassment or fear, because the person who loses his battle loses the war. So I think what he's doing is trying to put this huge stuff on David and saying, see, you can't go out. You don't have armor. And David tried to move around and says, I haven't done this stuff. And he gave him back his stuff. And David goes, I'm going to go out with him what, with what I know how to fight with. I killed a lion and bear with a staff and a slingshot. Or sling, not a slingshot, but a sling. I'm going to go fight Goliath this way. And you've got to picture, this has got to be one of the most hilarious pictures you can think of. Goliath. Fully armored, heavy armor, really can't move. You know, uh, if you know anything about that kind of battle, David is really at an advantage because he's mobile. Now, if he gets hit, he's dead. But he's so mobile, he probably won't get hit. Goliath is fully armored, fully decked out, barely can move. Okay, uh, So this is the classic battle of a heavy heavy armored individual against a light armored individual, or in David's case, non-armored individual, and comes out, they, Goliath, monstrous guy with fully armored, David, a little short guy with a, with a staff and a sling. <laughs> uh, anybody looking at that would have said, David's dead meat. Even those who understood, because David has no protection. Okay? One, one, one blow from even the shield of of Goliath is going to kill David, uh, or at least incapacitate him so he would then be killed. Uh, Goliath's got the spear you can throw at him. Uh, he's got a sword. He's got everything. And this looks like a total mismatch, which is why we get the story of any time a small, insignificant entity goes up against the government or a business, it's called a David and Goliath battle all over again. And we have our David and Goliath battles in our own, in our own flesh us against our sin, or usually this type of situation. Our sin is beat us and beat us and beat us and keeps winning. And without God, we're going to keep losing. But with God, we can beat the giants in our life. And this is the picture. This is what, what comes up. And the Philistine looks at him, and he disdains him. What is this? You know, you got a whole army full of men over there. They're fully decked out for battle. And you send me a boy. Uh, you send me a youth, and that can be, again, up to you know, somewhere in the 20s. And it says that Goliath has been a warrior since his youth. So Goliath got another disadvantage against him is he's got some age. Okay? But he is well known. He is well known as a victorious battle. Everywhere, everybody he fights, he wins. Most of it is because he's so much bigger than they are that they're terrified of him, but everybody he fights, he wins. And, you know, he is insulted. David's coming at him with a st staff, and that's really all he says is in verse 43. Am I a dog? Would you come at me with staves? <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? Beat me into submission with a, little, with a rod? And he curses him by his God. David is not deterred at all by this. You know, uh, oh, the Philistine says, come to me and I will give your flesh to the fowls and to the beast of the earth. In other words, I'm going to kill you and just leave you here on the field. David not being deterred, 
says, you come to me with a sword and a spirit and a shield, but I come at you with the name of the Lord of hosts, the name of the, and the God of the armies of Israel, whom you defiled. So he's going, you, you're coming at me with earthly weapons, but I've got God on my side. And that takes us back to what you said earlier. We, we oftentimes don't do things because we forget we have God. And a, any person with God is a majority and will win. Our problem is usually we don't have faith that God is going to deliver us and give us victory. And this is one of those things, I've been struggling with this over the last couple of months myself, you know, looking at certain things and forgetting that God is God. And here David's saying, I know who God is. God delivered my sheep out of those animals and he's going to deliver Israel from you because you're defying him. And he fully understood. Not been defying God, I don't think David ever would have even really cared. But he was making fun of God. If he was just saying, come out here, one of you come out here and be a champion for your people, I think David would have never been bothered by it. But when he was making fun of God and attacking God, David got righteously upset. And I kind of think of Jesus going into the temple. And they're buying and selling in the temple and what does he do? He makes a whip and he drives the people out and tosses their tables around. You know, David, you know, Jesus was not being a nice, kind person that everybody wants to think of him in those times. He was grabbing, got a whip in one hand and grip the other hand, was throwing these tables around and driving the people out of the temple. Why? Because they were defying the house of God. And he says, you made my father's house a den of thieves, and I'm not going to allow that. It's kind of where David's at right now. You're, you're, you're insulting God. And I'm, not, I'm going to stand up for him. I don't know why none of these other guys will stand up for him, but I will stand up for him. And it's a great picture of how God will use the most insignificant person to stand up and do the greatest things. And this is important for us. When we don't think like we're, that we're all that special and we can do anything, we're at the right place. Because God says, okay, I can use you. He doesn't want to take somebody who thinks that they can do it on their own. Now, David's had plenty of experience with the wild animals, and he just says this is just going to be like a wild animal. I think he underestimated Goliath a little bit, but God still delivered him <laughs> into his hand. In uh, verse 46, This day will the, Lord be delivered, will, will the Lord deliver you into my hand, and I will smite you, and I will take your head from you, and I will give your carcass to the birds and the beasts of the field. And then the big thing, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Yeah. David wasn't just boasting that he had the power to do it and that God could do it. He says God is going to do it. And why? That everyone would know. And this is important. When God does a work, he is going to be lifted up that everybody will know that God has done the work. And that's what I love here in our church. So the things that we've grown and, and seen such great, great motion and movement in, God has done great things. And I want to make sure he gets lifted up because it's not me. Anybody could have been, come up here and done what I've done with the power of God. But God gives the blessing. He gives the increase. And David's saying, you're going to, Goliath, you're going to die, and you're going to die so that everybody will know that there is a God in Israel. And... Uh, and all the assemblies shall know that the Lord saves not by sword or spear, nor by the, for the battle is the Lord's, he and he will give you into my hand. So he says, you know, you, you seem to have everything. You know, Goliath, you, you know, you should be winning this, but God's going to give you into my hand. You know, irritates, irritates Goliath just a little bit. Verse 20, and it came to pass when the Philistine arose and came and drew nigh unto meet David, that David hasted and ran toward the army to meet the Philistine. Okay, Goliath is running toward David, and David says, oh, fine, I'm going to run towards you. Now, this, you got to picture this. This has got to be it's a hilarious picture. Here's this big monstrous man running toward David, and David's running to him, closing the distance. Up to this point, they've been yelling back and forth to each other. And all of a sudden, it... Uh, Goliath comes running to him, and David says, isn't standing there waiting for him. He runs. David is anxious for this battle. He says, I want to see what God's going to do. And David put his hand into his bag, and he took out a stone and, 
and slang it, and smote the Philistine in the forehead, and the, sun, and the stone sank deep into his forehead, and he fell upon his face to the, ground, to the earth. So David takes one stone and kills Goliath. Now, one of the things I did want to mention is David picked up five stones. And there's a lot of people that say, why did David pick up five stones? Some people will believe that he was not very confident, and I don't think that. That doesn't match his conversation at all. Uh, there's a couple other guys. Some people think that he, he just wanted to have defense in case the army attacked when, when Goliath died, and that's a possibility. Uh, one guy quoted that there was no promise that one stone was going to kill Goliath. It, I don't think that was going to be a true one either, but it, I just thought it was a curious one. The one that I believe and I've been most... most uh, brought up on was that Goliath had four brothers. And David was ready to kill all four brothers. Uh, we know that Goliath had four brothers from 2 Samuel chapter 12, verses 15 through 22. A stone for each brother. A stone for each brother. And I kind of tend to believe that that's probably what it was. Because uh, Goliath was famous. They would have known that he had brothers that were also giants. Now, I'm not telling you, know, I'm not going to tell you what to believe, but I just, I've always tended to believe that that made a lot of sense to me. He was ready to kill the brothers because the brothers would want to revenge Goliath. And uh, I'm not sure if all of them, when I read it closely, I'm not sure that all of them were brothers because it says the son of the giant. So I don't know if uh, Goliath's father was a giant or some of them were, some of these might have been the children of Goliath. But anyway, there were four other giants related to Goliath, and I think he took the, four, the five stones so he'd be ready to, to kill anybody that wanted to avenge Goliath's death. Uh, all that is speculation. We don't really know. Uh, so Goliath falls on his face in verse 15. David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone, and he smote the Philistine and slew him. And there was no sword in the hand of David. Therefore David ran over, stood upon the Philistine, took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and, and slew him and cut off his head thereof. And when the Philistines saw their champion was dead, they fled. This is one of the things we see about David. David is not a gentle person when it comes to battle. Okay? Goliath is dead. He doesn't have a sword, so he runs over and he takes Goliath's sword. Yeah, that little tiny one that we read later on was a pretty big sword. I mean, it was a broad sword in David's hands, and David cuts his head off. And yeah. You can picture him. He's holding Goliath's head in the air. It's pretty hard to cut off, too. It's not Depends on how sharp the sword was. Yeah. Yeah, Goliath's down face down. There's nothing along the back of his neck, so that's an easy, easy chop. And we don't know how good David was with the sword, especially that size. But he gets the head of Goliath off him. <laughs> and that sword is big enough and heavy enough, it probably cut Goliath's head off pretty much on its own. And he's standing on Goliath, holding the head of Goliath up, and the Philistines run <laughs> away from Israel. <laughs> Not toward them, but away. And then in verse 52, And the men of Israel and Judah arose and shouted and pursued the Philistines until they came to the valley and to the gates of Ekron. And the wounding of the Philistines fell down by the wayside to Shaharaim, even to Gath and unto Ekron. And the children of Israel returned from chasing after the Philistines, and they spoiled their tents. And David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. So the people of Israel chased them from the valley of Elah all the way back to Philistine, Gath, and Ekron, which remember I told you was about 13 miles. So they're going to chase them as they're running away for 13 miles until they finally make it to the cities. And they say, OK, well, whoever made it to the city, we're just going to let them stay in the city. And they came back, and they spoiled the camp. And David took Goliath's head and his armor and everything else and went to Jerusalem. You know, he is now the hero. You know, he's the hero. Nobody else was willing to stand up against Goliath. He's going around holding the head of Goliath. And I can't even picture <laughs> that whole idea. Goliath's got to be a pretty good size. His head had to be a pretty good size as well. 
He, and he takes the armor. He takes Goliath's armor. I'm pretty sure he had help to take that. He probably was using the cart that he came with originally. Um, but you got a picture. David had his trophy. He's got the armor of Goliath. Later on, we're going to find out that the sword of Goliath went into the temple and a couple of other pieces of Saul's stuff. Basically, he puts them into, on display. He puts the, the, his spoil on display. I was victorious. The, the giant died. God delivered him. We're going to show you the, we're going to show you the vic, vic, victory. And instead of going back home, he's going to go to Jerusalem. Why they go to Jerusalem, to be honest with you, I don't know, because Jerusalem isn't the capital at the moment. I have a feeling that they're really talking about Mizpah, which is just north of Jerusalem. Uh, but it says they went to Jerusalem. And verse 5. And when Saul saw, Saul saw David go forth against the Philistine, he said unto Abner, the captain of the host, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I cannot tell. And the king said, inquire of whose son this stripling is. And as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistines, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the, of the Philistine. And Saul said, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant Jesse, the Bethlehemite. And this is where a lot of people begin to say there's something wrong with all the, this because we just know the previous chapter he sang before Saul and was brought into the court. Now, a couple of things we can look at. One people, one thing people say is maybe this chapter is not in order, but we already know that it isn't because it says that he returned from Saul back to his father's sheep. So we know that this is in order. Okay, so that one is not the right answer. Uh, another answer is how much time has gone by. You know, David's mid-teen, young teen, when he first meets Saul, even if it's only been six years or so, he's grown, he may have grown a beard, he's gotten a little stronger, he's more mature, his voice is deeper, and it is quite possible that Saul did not recognize him. That's another thing that a lot of people put out is that Saul was just a little crazy. He may not have remembered. The other thing may be that one of the rewards is that the father's house is not going to have to pay taxes. And his question was, whose son is this? Okay, so it is quite possible when he took David originally, he never inquired into David's background. Uh, somebody said that the, there was a Bethlehemite, I think is what it was. But anyway, it's still possible he, you know, by just the arrogance of royalty that he never even cared about David's background. Now he's got a problem. He's got to reward this man's family with no taxes. David is to be enriched, and he's supposed to get the hand of Saul's daughter. We're going to find out a lot of these things did not happen. Uh, the end of 17, yeah. So it is quite possible he's just asking, I want to know who is it that's not getting taxed? And that's a possibility. And like I say, with the arrogance of royalty, he may never have cared who David's family was. Yeah, Even if somebody had told him. Yeah, I don't, you know, insignificant guy. I, he's a good player of instruments. Uh, right, but you know, I really don't care who his family was. And that's kind of who he's, you know, it says he's going to take the best of the best, and he's not really going to care what family he's taking them from. So I think it's a combination of that. The arrogancy of the royalty, I don't really care about my servant. He plays beautiful music. I like, I, I know who he is, and just not caring that who he's not. But now he's got to honor his word. So I think that that's probably a true statement, is I want to now, now I need to know who, you know, oh yeah, you know, David, oh yeah, I know who David is, but you know, who's his family? Who's not paying taxes? Who do I need to tell the, you know, the tax collectors to leave alone? And that's what I think has happened here. Uh, and then he goes, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, because that's, that is specifically who he's asked each time. Whose son are you? So I really don't know that he doesn't know who David is, because that's never... It's never through here that he questions, who are you? Yeah. 
the question each place is, whose son are you? So I really have this idea that he doesn't know who the father of David is because he's never cared. You know, I've, got a good, I've got a good musician. He, he calms my soul. I know he's from Bethlehem. My, my staff knows how, how to get hold of him and where to find him when I need him. And I really don't care who his father is. And that's what I think we see from this. So I don't see that there's any contradiction here myself uh, because the question always isn't who are you, but who is your father? And so we look at that and just an answer so that when people tell you, well, see, this, this, this verse is you know, contradictory. It's really not contradictory when you look at it. There, there's several possible answers, and I think the most likely is that Saul just didn't care about who his parents were, and, and uh, now he's asking, now he's asking who, who, who are your parents? He'd run in a country. Well, even if he did, he would have gone right in and out. Uh, and there is that arrogancy amongst the rich and the famous and everything. Uh, well, I know you because you're somewhat important, but I don't know your family. I really don't care to know your family. I really don't know you that well. And I think that's where we're at with this statement. Uh, so that's just an answer when somebody says, well, this one does all this. Here's, well, here's a contradiction. And this is one of the places where people will point to a contradiction. And I don't see it as a contradiction. I've never have seen it as a contradiction. All right, we're going to close here. Lord, we just thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity we've had to look at your word and ask you to go with us. Lord, show us how to live better for you and more faithful with you. Teach us to be more dependent upon you and walking by faith. In Jesus' name, amen.